This is Gil Manser welcoming you to North Bay Public Media's KRCB-FM continuing celebration of Women's History Month. Word-by-word conversations with writers has chosen to participate with a return visit from the novelist, essayist, and MacArthur Genius Grant winner Yi-Yun Lee. Word-by-word listeners will recall that I first talked with Lee in February 2009 about The Vagrants, a novel set in a fictionalized Chinese city called Muddy River. In the first interview, I told our listeners that Yi Yun Li was raised in Beijing, joined the Chinese Army, and then earned a degree in biology at Beijing University. She traveled to the University of Iowa in 1996 to work on her graduate degree in immunology, and fortuitously for her readers, took an adult ed class in creative writing. A lot has happened in the intervening years, some of which Li writes about in her newly released memoir, Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life. Yi Yun Lee, I am pleased and honored to be able to welcome you once again to Word by Word. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, certainly. One of the things I discovered in your memoir is that people frequently approach you with the line something like, you probably don't remember me, but we met at such and such. And then you create a plausibly false memory to share with this person. So now it's my turn. Yi Yun, you probably don't remember, but the first time you were on Word by Word, I commented how fate in capital letters, F-A-T-E, plays a critically important role in the vagrants. Wow, I actually don't remember that. See? Well, see, see, we're supposed to make a plausible (laughs) history there. I remember the drive here. You do? I remember meeting you. Oh, good. Well, that's nice. Yeah. So anyway, since fate is uh, so important, or at least in the discussion was in 2009, I thought it might be interesting to read about uh, your father, which Uh is from... You're in her new book. Yes. My father is the most fatalistic person I have ever known. He once admitted that he had not felt a day of peace in his marriage and expressed his regret that he had never thought of protecting my sister and me from our, my, from our mother, who's a family despot. Unpredictable in both her callousness and her vulnerability. But the truth is, He tried to instill this fatalism in us because it was our only protection. For years, I've been hiding behind that. Being addicted to fatalism can make one look calm, capable, even happy. Okay. So we elaborate on that a little bit. What is fatalism? What is fatalism? In your version. version. We won't give you Webster. I think my version of fatalism is, you know, specifically to my family. I was born in this family. I was raised by this pair of parents, and they give me good things, and there are things they could not give me, and I would accept every single thing I got from this family. And I would live the life sort of determined by what they have given me, and of course, you no. Know, there were times that I rebelled against the, the fate. For instance, I was fated to be a scientist. That was how my parents brought me up, and I think that was. Well, one. let's talk about it here. Yeah, now, parents' expectations is not the same thing as fate, is it? Well, or is it in China? Depending on how you 
think about it. Like, I am a parent. I have expectations for my children, As too. we all do. Yes. yes. But I would not dictate their life uh, for with my expectation in mind. I think with my mother especially, you know, my father is fatalistic more than my mother. She is a family dictator. You know, she wants this life to be like this. And so I think fatalism is not wanting to confront that, mm. not wanting to say this doesn't sound right, more about just hiding and making use of whatever I have and making use you know, of good and bad to come up with a life myself. And acceptance? Yes, I think so. Yeah. 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 Okay. You uh, may remember during our first interview, you also chatted briefly about the challenge of writing English instead of your native language. And in fact, your first books and and short pieces were in English, Mm -hmm. which is astounding. So um, I happened to get a copy of the the latest New Yorker essay that you wrote. So if you can share with our listeners writing in English. Uh, Yes. Okay. So this is in the New Yorker. It's also in the book. It's an excerpt of the book. People often ask about my decision to write in English. The switch from one language to another feels natural to me, I reply. Though that does not say much, just as one can hardly give a convincing explanation as as to why someone's hair turns gray on one day but not on another. But this is an inane analogy, I realize, because I do not want to touch the heart of the matter. Yes. There is something unnatural, which I have refused to accept. Not the fact of writing in a second language. They are always Nabokov and Conrad as references, and many of my contemporaries as well. Or that I impulsively give up a reliable career for writing. It's the absoluteness of my abandonment of Chinese, undertaken with such determination that it is a kind of suicide. Okay. So, since I love to chop things up a bit and put them back in a different order, sort of like a tarot card deck, you know, lay them out, right? I'm going to jump to um, a bit that you wrote in your new book, The Dear Friend for My Life, I Write to You in Your Life, and it's about using the word I. So, if you could start here, it goes on to there. Okay. A word I hate to use in English is I. It is a melodramatic word. In Chinese, a language less grammatically strict, one can construct a sentence with an implied subject pronoun and skip that embarrassing I, or else replace it with we. Living is not an original business. Certainly in every era there are visionaries and revolutionaries and eccentrics but they, conscious of, or even more predictable, living for their images, tend to be tedious. Stripped of audience, originality would be much less at ease with it, with itself. To bear the lack of originality, even the least ambitious among us have to invent some way to believe we are distinctive and irreplaceable. One wonders if this desire, humble and presumptuous, though innately human, 
gives the permission for the use of I. Yet for months after the hospital stays, I try to explain to those around me that anyone can be and should be replaceable. What does this I matter to you when it means so little to myself? In the aftermath of a Tiananmen Square massacre, the entering class of my university was sent to the army for a year to prevent future insubordination. In the army, with useful conceit, I presented myself as someone different from others, submitting obliquely subversive poetry when I was ordered to write propaganda, making cleverly insolent comments about the officers, taking every opportunity to undermine the authority of our squad leader, to defy any political authority, to endanger myself in a righteous way, to use my words to discredit to distinguish the self from people around me. These, at 18, were shortcuts to what I really wanted, confirmation that life, bleak and unjust, was not worth living. Before we left the army, the squad leader wrote to me. It was a tradition to write farewell farewell notes to one another. Some people are commonplace, others are not. A day spent with the late latter leaves enough memory, more than years spent with the former. As an ordinary person, I count it as my luck to have spent a year with you. She had been raised in a military family, differential to anyone superior, genuinely believing in the power bestowed on her by the army, trusting communist teaching how I had made her suffer and rage by insisting on talking about the Tiananmen Square massacre. The note was written without malice, but it mortified me. I always feel grateful to her for letting me see how tedious a person can be when striving to impress the world with personality. It's fortunate, too, that my boringness was shown to me in such a gentle manner. Had she seen through me and written out of sarcasm, I might have become defensive about my foolishness. But she was too young to realize she was more real than the potion I had become, and I was not experienced enough to feel guilt. A person, by dismissing her own self with a morbid carelessness, could easily bulldoze another person's belief. We could spend the entire hour just talking about that, sir. You you realize that because it's so rich with information and detail, and contrasts with what the American experience is. So um, let me pick a few things out. Mm -hmm. One is you write about how the using the phrase "I" is uncommon Mm -hmm. in China Mm -hmm. in in Chinese Language, language. Yes, and. Obviously, when you came to the United States and you sat down in a class of people who mm-hmm. had been trained since they before they were born, mm-hmm. that I is the most important thing in the universe, held up you know to this to the sun like the Lion King mm-hmm. and said, "See, yes. the only thing greater than yourself, yes. right?" Yes. So, what did you do? What was the culture shock like? I can you recall? <laughs> I do recall one moment was. It stood out to me was the first year I came here, I 
babysat for a professor, a doctor mm-hmm. couple, and their child was about two and a half. And I think it's no. I mean, I have children, and children at that age I always say, "This is mine." Terrible twos. Yes, yes. Or I want this. And for me, I was surprised how a tiny person had such a big ego, like such resolution. Everything is hers. And I thought, wow, this is how Americans look at the world. This is mine. This is me. And of course, you know, we did not have that in China. We were more about this is yours. This is ours. Yeah, Yeah, or ours. And let's share. You know, we're one group. We're one unity. We can't tell you from me. So we're all together. So that was a lesson Mm -hmm. learned early on. And, And I think the... Being original, that's another concept. It's still a little vague to me what it means to be original because people often strive to be original. Right. And they comment on originality as though it's the most important thing. And it always it's, it's interesting to me. It doesn't, it doesn't sound so... I mean, the things I have seen being called original, I think they are more about presenting something big in that self rather than original. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're teaching, because you, you teach, what, 18, 19-year-olds, same age that this person was coming about yes. your writing. Yeah. Do you, how do you handle their I-ness, their <laughs> original <laughs> thoughts that, thought you know, it. of course, if you went and looked through, you know, Turgeon F or Chekhov or somebody, he had written down, you know, 100 years or more ago. Yes. Well, I did one exi- assignment years ago. This was I, when I was teaching creative nonfiction. I realized students, especially in nonfiction, every sentence starts with I. Right. And it drove me a little nuts. So I said, I'm going to give you an assignment. <laughs> in this assignment, you cannot use I. Okay. Altogether. No first person singular. No first person singular. And so my students started to write, and I got interesting Results, people start to still write. I think they, they were still writing about themselves, but from others' point of view. For instance, one girl wrote from her backpack's point of view mm. about her. Mm. Interesting. Yes. Well, that's original. Yes, it is original, right. except it's about the same eye. <laughs> you know, right. It's a little disappointing with that. But surprisingly, it was not only her. There was another person who wrote from a pot of flour, a flower pot, and right. the flower inside the pot, but the, the light the light that was still shed on this author. So I realized, no, it's actually not only I, that, that pronoun that distracts my student. It is really this innate belief that their self, or, you know, this big self, like a, like a big pit in avocado. It's the most important self in them. The big pit in the avocado. <laughs> I borrowed that from Gish Jan. Okay. <laughs> yes. So let me read a little bit uh, from the, just before that you wrote about uh, the use of I in the same uh, part of the book. You write, I am not an autobiographical writer. One cannot be without a solid and explicable self. And read all autobiographical writers with the same curiosity. What kind of life permits a person to the right? 
to become his own subject. Except, half a page later, you write about your experience as an autobiographical experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So are you learning from your students? Are you shifting? Are you changing? Are you, have you become a different individual? Yeah. You know, you're supposed to change every seven years. Right? Oh, Isn't wow. Isn't that the Native American belief? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've been writing for more than seven years yes, now. Right. Yes, right. Yes, so a I... number of, of new lives. Yes. 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 I, I would say, you know, I used to deny that I was an autobiographical author. When people ask, I would say with strong conviction, no, of course I'm not autobiographical. Right. Right. But anytime you state something so strongly, <laughs> you shouldn't put it on the same, you know, opposite the same page, so that it's easily stood out. Yes. yes. So clearly, there's you have to suspect there's something there. Uh-huh. And I think writing this book is to me a almost like a coming out of that closet of being an autobiographical author, which means it's not like I am my own subject, but at least I am drawing myself out of that narrative and feeling a little bit more comfortable writing about myself. Mm-hmm. And so, but that I, again, I I was thinking about this I I was writing, and it's really not a subject more than an object. So if you say I, okay. if you say I have, this experience, you right. know, I experienced this. I, I'll tell you a story about myself. So that I, to me, is a subject. Okay. And I think for this book, oftentimes I am posting questions to this I, to myself. Right. So this I is actually a target of my questioning. So this is your scientist's way of parsing language. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 And I think it's it's... You know, it's the scientific training of parsing and dissecting. Right. I like that concept of dissect something. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then laying it out in a different pattern. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because you do that. You consciously do that. You make reference to it in your writing, you know. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this book, uh, Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life. The title comes from? It's from Catherine Munsfield's right. journal entry. Right. Yes. And I was reading her notebooks when I was having a difficult time. Okay. Yeah. And who are you writing to? Uh, you knew that question was coming. I I can never answer that question. Oh. Well. You know how many times have you been asked so far? At least 10. No, you're the first one. Really? Yes. Okay. Wow. Yes. Interesting. It's interesting because when you said that question is coming, I thought, why didn't it never occur to people to ask that? Well, it's such a personal book. I mean, it's for someone who prides themselves on being insular. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that a good word yeah. to use? Yes. Um, it's very, very open and yeah. revealing. Yeah. yeah. And I assume not just writing it, mm-hmm. but deciding it to put it out there in the world yeah. must have been a tremendously mm-hmm. difficult mm-hmm. process. Yes. I think, well, partly when I was writing it, of course, I didn't imagine p- publishing it. Okay, so Other you're writing it to yourself? To, no, you're writing it to some... To one friend. One friend. Yeah, right. which I put it which in front of the book. Which you put in the book. front, didn't yeah, you? Yes, I have. I said it's this, to... 
this book is part of a conversation with Bridget Hughes. That's right. It's a dear okay. friend. So she, of course, is the first dear friend in the book. Yes. Who we talked a lot while we were working on this book together. You know, I would show her draft after draft after draft. And But I'm going to cheat, too. I think Dear Friend is also myself because mm. the last mm-hmm. sentence in the book. Mm-hmm. I was going to go there. Yep. Yes. And I. it's the, probably the only time I, I addressed myself as a friend because I would say for most part of the book, this self is an enemy or at least is not a friendly person. You know, I'm arguing with this person, and I'm dissecting this person. To the end, I, I said to myself, dear friend. So that's the second dear friend. And now I feel that, you know, a book going out to the world, a book having its own life, it, it's really hard to imagine. And I, I'm, I'm still not used to it, but I think... Now I think whoever is that dear friend is the reader who can read it the right way or who can get some, something out of it. So do you have a right way to read this or is it up That's to the a, individual? It, of course, it's up to the individual. Right. But, you know, but there are certain ways that, you know, one wants to avoid being read. Yeah. I don't want it this, this to be like a misery memoir or depression memoir because it is not a, you know, misery narrative or depression narrative, all these things. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure, you know, but you're right. You can you can decide how the book is going to be read once it's out of your hand. Yeah, unfortunately. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't know. Maybe that's the challenge. Well, I think there's one line in the book. I said the readers always win. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, as, as I mentioned off air, I prefer to avoid others' reviews or comments about a book before I read it myself. <laughs> So when I picked up Dear Friends for My Life, I Write to You in Your Life, I was totally unprepared for what I'm calling the elephant in the living room. Mm-hmm. You know that phrase? Yes. 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 Your suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first essay, the one about the same title as the collection, coyly talks about your reactions to the suicides of people you know. Mm-hmm. The colleague in New York, the friend yeah. in China, and we can talk about them. Mm-hmm. But in your the part the part that's reprinted in the New Yorker the suicide part yes uh, which is long do you mind reading this yeah no I don't okay. mind yeah um, you don't uh, hold it back shall we say right okay I'll read it and I'll I'll talk right that's great yes suicide in the summer and autumn of 2012 I was hospitalized in California and in New York for suicide attempts. The first time for a few days, and the second time for three weeks. During those months, my dreams often took me back to Beijing. I would be standing on top of a building, one of those gray Soviet-style apartment complexes. Or I would be lost on a bus traveling through an unfamiliar neighborhood. Waking up, I would list in my journal images that did not appear in my dreams. A swallow's nest underneath a balcony the barbed wires at the rooftop, the garden where old people sat and exchanged gossip, the mailboxes at street corners, round green covered by dust, with handwritten collection times behind a square window of half opaque plastic. Yet I have never dreamed of Iowa City, where I first landed in America in 1996 at the age of 23. When asked about my initial impression of the place, 
I cannot excavate anything from memory to form a meaningful answer. During a recent trip there from my home in California, I visited a neighborhood that I used to walk through every day. The one-story houses, which were painted in pleasantly muted colors, with gardens in the front enclosed by white picket fences, had now changed. I realized that I had never described them to others or to myself in Chinese, and when English was established as my language, they had become everyday mundanities. What happened during my transition from one language to another did not become memory. Yes. Um, in your previous time that we were together, we talked about dreams, mm-hmm. and um, you you shared that you had very vivid dreams, very ones that you remembered, recalled in quite mm-hmm. detail when yeah. you awoke. Yeah. Uh, but that you didn't write about them often. Mm-hmm. It's still true. It's still true. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mean for my characters or for my? Well, no. The, we have to talk about you writing yeah. about you and, right. and your characters. I think. Right. Which, of course, gives you that freedom to write mm-hmm. things that you otherwise wouldn't own. I guess is that fair? Yes. Yeah. I, I would say so. Yeah. In the in part of the book, you spend a time in the second section about a trip to Ireland, mm-hmm. and you've been invited over there, I guess, for a conference yeah. on a writer who I don't know, Gemma Gahan. Right. Yes. And uh, others, I hope, will. Mm-hmm. And you follow in his footsteps, you know, in guided tours and various other ways, mm-hmm. of, you know, just little meanderings on yeah. your own. And like the little white picket fence places that in Iowa that are still the same, they're very similar to mm-hmm. when he was writing about these spots. Yes. Yes. But you also write the phrase, let's see, page 24. Let me see if it's worth reading the whole mm-hmm. thing. That my mind was in poor shape and Ireland was your escape mm-hmm. from your that fate. Yes. And then when you came home is when you had one of your The, the first attempt, yes. 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 Well, sometimes you think going to another place would solve all the problems in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And I traveled quite a lot during those two years. And I think this constant... You is know, this move, because you had the... The money to do it from the grant or just because no. you're, this is where you were in your life? I mean, I, I get invitations sometimes to go to places, but I don't often travel. But I noticed that during those two years, anything, any invitation, I would go just because I was restless. You know, physically, I, was, I wanted mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. another place sort of to refresh myself as right. though going, going to Ireland or going to England or going to any country and coming back. Everything would be fine, which, of course, is a wishful thinking. You, As I said, you carry yourself everywhere, right. and you come back with the same self. Right. Yeah. Um, let me do a break here. You have become a part of North Bay Public Media's continuing celebration of Women's History Month by listening to word-by-word conversations with writers. With the novelist, essayist, and MacArthur Genius Grant winner Yi Yun Lee, and joins host Gil Manser for an intimate discussion of Lee's memoir, Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life. There's a great deal more to come in the next half hour, so stay tuned to KRCB-FM. Well, one of the other things that comes up, is there's this wonderful little bit, let's see if we can find it, 112, um, where you're talking about growing up in China. Mm-hmm. 
Um, dum, 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 yes. And it's your last year in high school. Okay. Yes. Do you remember the one where I, we're going to go to this? Uh, this is a, this, this is the same difficulty, I think. Yeah. 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 Do you want me to read that? Please, if you can. If not, yeah. I read okay, it for stop. you. Okay, stop. Yes. Okay. In the last year of high school, I had a habit of playing truant, not worried about being caught. I was in charge of keeping attendance, trusted by the teachers, once in a while persuaded by my classmates away from accuracy. On one dreary winter afternoon, I skipped classes and walked in the run-down alleys near the school. Now these alleys were lined with chick, with chic pubs and sophisticated eateries catering to expats and tourists. I was looking for a place I had read in newspapers, the first and only one of its kind in the city, the article had said. This was before the time of telephones, and I did not have a map. It took me t- nearly two years to find a place, a quadrangle among residential quadrangles, with more than ten plaques bearing the names of different organizations by the gate. I entered the courtyard and saw stacks of coal bricks piled up near one wall, several bicycles leaning against one another. A woman came out of a door and asked me what I wanted. I'm looking for the office of volunteers for the mental health of the next generation, I said. The woman sighed heavily. I can't believe it, she said to someone inside. Here's another one of those crazy kids. She then turned to me and said, They're not in today. Go back and live your life. Don't ever come here again. The indifference of strangers is not far from that of characters, yet the latter do not make one feel exposed. They have no interest in interfering with my life. They have neither the time nor the curiosity to ask me questions. They do not preserve me in the amber of their memories. What else does one want from the people but that kind of freedom, an existence closest to non-existence? The indifferent, though, have their powers. Again and again I let them usurp my dreams, and again and again they evict me from their world, oblivious of any attachment. Now go back to your real life, they dismiss me with the same words I used to end my phone calls to friends with dismissing myself and masking it with lightheartedness. Do you, a friend asked me years ago, understand that you are in people's real lives? I remember feeling shocked. At the time, the only real people were my characters. When a book is finished, to mitigate the emptiness of their leave-taking, one kills them in a gentle manner. If there's any violence in imagining the action... It is as secretive as a suicidal thought lodged in the corner of one's mind. It's writing, not my way of rehearsing death. Mm. Yes. Well, we can mind that one too, can't we? Yes. La- you'd have layer upon layer upon layer. Of. Now, you said you, yeah. took, you redid lots of rewrites. I did. And I assume you made choices of what you included and didn't. Yes. And you knew the vulnerability that's inherent in those words. Thank you. Yeah, I did do a lot of rewriting. I mean, each essay, would, I would say, took eight to ten months, sometimes yeah. a year yeah. or two. Yes. Yeah. If you read the whole book, 
Mm-hmm. And there's it's it's interesting because you, you, the first chapter, I guess we'll call it a chapter, first yeah. group, yeah. is is broken up into little numbered paragraphs or you know yeah. semi sections, mm-hmm. and um, they talk about different subjects. There's mm-hmm. no you know bridge between them. Yeah. The other later parts, there's you know a constant narrative. Yeah. The um, the thing that I found fascinating was how the teachers and others around you coped with your brilliance, if I can use that oh. word, by giving like, you jobs and tasks and other things outside what other people would do, uh, like the library, for instance. Yes. 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 Like the um, the the one we just described in this section, mm-hmm. where you had there you, you are. And and the woman who was commenting on your writing when you were in the army, mm-hmm. same thing. Yeah, they knew that they had interacted with someone who who shines, really? if you will. Yes, I thought I was deceptionally good. <laughs> you thought you were covering that all up. Yes, yes. Well, that's what smart people unfortunately learn they have to do. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, the teachers trusted me because I was a good student. Right. Yes. Well, yeah. more than that. Yeah, they I knew was... that you were, shall we say, older than your age. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, honest in how you dealt with others, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, we can keep going on yeah. making a list. Yeah. All good things. Clearly, all deceptions, right? All what you put on. Yes. 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 I your remember... character you, you wore as a <laughs> protection. I remember in high school, someone said to me, I was the model daughter for every parent. Every ah. parent wanted me to be the daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't you be like her? I was yes. insulted. I mean, you were. I was, I was insulted. You didn't think that you were that. No, I, no. I knew they were wrong. Well, that's because you had all these rebellious thoughts that you yeah. didn't share, or sometimes you did, but they were carefully uh, clouded over yeah. so that they didn't see that. Yeah. This coming from you, it was yeah. just a... <laughs> Third person kind yes, of thing. Yes, that's right. right? Yes. Yeah, of course I got upset. You know, you don't want to deceive people. The other thing, of course, in this is that you sought out, it took you two years to find this, a constant, you know, back and forth trip to find this one little thing you'd read about in the newspaper, and I love the title of it, The Volunteers for the Mental Health of the Next Generation. Did you actually get to meet with them? I did not meet them. I went just that once, ah. and, of course, someone shooed me away. Right. Yes. But what were they trying to do? Do you know anything about them? What was because remember where you are in China? You're you're a senior in high school, it right? Nineteen ninety. Yeah, I would say. You yeah, know, there was no mental health. You know, I guess agencies to help young people or anyone Indian, right. or anyone. Right. And this is, was this was the first group of volunteers to help. I guess it's more like just. Prop, uh, non-profit and helping mm-hmm, mm-hmm. young people dealing with all sorts of issues in right, their lives. Right. Yeah. But clearly, I did not. I just, I only saw the plaque. And you put your own interpretation of what that meant. Well, I, I was hopeful if I was going there and meeting these people, I could at least find some answers. So you don't know what the therapies were in China at that no, time? No, I did no, not know no. anything. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you went to the hospital and you signed yourself into the hospital, is that well, right? Well, I, I, I was sent in by other people. Okay. Yes. You referred in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sort of. I was sent in by ER, so oh, let's oh, say okay. that. Okay. Yeah, that's not that's a whole <laughs> that's different not great. kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. It's this yeah. or somewhere out of jail. Yeah. The, um, so you had no choice in what approach or therapies would be used, or did you within the setting? 
No, not not at all, I would say. So I assume there were standard group sessions, group sessions yeah, around yeah. and then individual one-on-ones yeah. or one-on-twos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was any of it helpful or what was helpful? I would say, you know, certain things were helpful. For instance, I, I think the the things I learned from this period, especially at hospitalization, one is a doctor. I went I probably wrote in the book I went to this this medical doctor had a had a class called yes. Mind and Brain. So so the interview But you see you're doing it as a scientist again. Yes. Okay. Yes. So yes. I went there to have an interview with the students just to help them understand. And and by the end of the class, I asked this doctor, I said, what do you think of my case? And, well, he said, there are many talented doctors here because he was not my doctor, so he could not say much. He said, well, there are many talented doctors here. You just have to trust them. But he said, well, there's one thing. You know, you, you have to think about your situation as a, as a psychological manifestation of physiological condition. Because we talk a little bit about my family genes, you know, the inheritance of mental illness. Really? Yes. That's what he said. Wow. It, what kind of a position was he? It's a, Is it's he a neurologist? Med- yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, whether it's all true or not, it's an interesting way for me to think about, yes, there are certain parts of my brain that, that are beyond my control. Well, see, know? there's fate again. Yeah. Yes, you've yes. got this, you know, person big, in the clouds big, yeah, you know, saying, weaving this yeah, web of yeah. complexity. Wrong signals here right. and there. Yeah. Yes, so it is a little helpful to hear that. And the other thing I found helpful, this was back in California. It's actually my therapist and and he said he said the most dangerous thing for you is you can stay so still physically while you're mentally agitated. You have com- references to that throughout yeah. the book. Yeah. By other people commenting about it. Yeah. yeah. And I realize, yes, when you're mentally agitated, if your body, you know, agitates too, at least you get some of those things out. Right. But I can hold in and then, you know, it's they, they just think it's a sign of danger. So I, I feel that I learned a few signs that I want to watch out for in the future, and that's a helpful thing. You're looking for triggers? Yes, triggers. More, I mean, yes, triggers are hard to... You know, I think triggers are almost like afterthoughts. <laughs> yeah, that you can look at it back and say, see, that's what did it. You yes. Know, so well, in the middle, you don't. No. I think just to recognize the physical symptom and just mm. that agitation mm-hmm. and not moving. I think that to me is a sign. Yeah. Not moving is a sign. Yeah. That something's coming. Yes. Right. Yeah. But that you've done at least in according to your book since at least junior high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I'm, right. I can be very... Static. <laughs> the other thing that comes up, and here's a fret, the quote uh, from page 115, that basically, how can you kill yourself when there are those who love you and who you love? Say that again, the quote. Wait, it. yeah. Okay. I, I'll I read think the exact quote. Yeah, the okay. quote, yeah. Oh, she, she says, what does that mean? And this yeah, is I'm, one of those, you know, intrusive statements to someone when they find out. Yeah. How could you have thought of suicide when you have people you love? How could you have forgotten those who love you, Mm -hmm. is the phrase. Yeah. These questions were asked again and again, but love is the wrong thing to question. One does not will oneself to love. One does not kill oneself because one ceases to love. 
The difficulty is that love erases. The more faded one becomes, the more easily one loves. I have a feeling a lot of people would disagree with that passage. Do you think? Um, or, I think it depends on whether they're loved. Or yeah, or how? Because a lot of people don't think that they are. Really. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did, actually, last week I was on well, book, yeah. I mean, let's go back to, you know, the parents. Yeah. Do your parents love? This is one of the major issues, at least in the United States. Do they Do they love me? Yeah, did they love me? Or they just, you know, here I am, and they go on with their lives in spite of it. I'm sure they love me. I mean, if you're talking no, about my parents. your parents. My yes. parents. Yes, I, I think they love me. Well, then you're two-thirds of the way there. Two-thirds of the way, too? To being... Loved? Yes. But To accepting love and, and recognizing. Right, but I, I guess what I'm arguing here is accepting love or being recognized or being loved. That's not the answer to the question of suicide. And people always connect that to... It's a confabulation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, there are different issues, I think. Yeah. It's the same as, I would say... It's the same as, like, if people love you so much, how can you get this cancer? Right. It's, people don't realize, you know, we don't get cancer because well, we're, we're not. we're back to fate again, aren't we? Oh, yes. yes. Okay, so there is a fatalistic yeah, yeah. thought there. Well, it, this is a, a, a truism mm -hmm. that, you know, religions were basically created to try to answer. Right. Okay. Yeah. You have some commentaries about religion in the book and the one woman who, you know, in one of the hospitals who wanted you to, you know, pray Buddhist with her, if we can call it yeah. that. Yeah, go yeah. through the rituals and such. And you didn't see the value of that at that time. Mm -hmm. Have there been other times in your life where uh, ritual, it doesn't have to be a spirituality, but a uh, doing the same thing over and over in a certain way has been helpful? Yes, I would say actually reading as a ritual is the most helpful thing for me, right. especially, you know, coming out of the hospitals, you know, having so much time and trying to recover. And I have my ritual of reading certain books at certain time. You just don't fail these authors. You just go to them, even though you don't feel like you can read. Uh -huh. You still go to them. So yeah. that, to me, is helpful. Yeah. There's a book put out by uh, Manjula. Is, yeah. it, is that how you say your name? I think Martin. Mandrula. Mandrula. Martin. Yeah. And his book is called Scratch, Writer's Money and the Art of Making a Living. And she uh, has a variety of writers together, gathered together. One of them, you, also Cheryl Strayed, who's the woman who hiked the, you know. The wild. Wild, yeah. The, yes. the trail from yeah. the Southern California up to the head of the waters of the, some river. Yeah. And Jonathan Franzen and uh, Roxane Gay, et cetera. And you have a, a little bit in here in which she asks you some very pointed questions about making money. As a, right. But she also talks about how you only read dead writers, which isn't true. I mean, I would say I read more dead authors than life authors. And you have some that you like to go back to over and over again. Yes. And you write in the book that this happened when you were working in this library and you were allowed to check out a couple books. Mm -hmm. Each week, was it? One book a week, I One think. book a week. Yeah, yeah. And that you kept taking some of the same ones out yes. over and over. Yes. Yeah. I was a librarian assistant, so I got two books a week. That's what yeah, I that's remember. Right. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay. Yes, that's right. That's one of the perks of being someone being, they could trust. Yes. That's fascinating where you describe how 
the people, there were very few books on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And th- is this in the community or in the it's school? A, it's or a where? middle school in library. Middle school. So it's a small library. Right. There were not many books. Or there were books that were not quite up to par, I think. It was just, you know, old revolutionary novels, oh. those things. And a lot of textbooks. And not quite readable a library. I mean, I did read almost everything in that library. Mm-hmm. And Tegeniev, of course, I discovered Tegeniev in that library, which, you know, atoned the libraries <laughs> right. lacking. Well, you have to have the Russian revolutionaries because that was a communistly acceptable, yes, right? Yes, yes. So, uh, but that's an unusual thing for a junior high mm-hmm. person to read, wouldn't you? I mean, at least I would think it yeah. was. Yeah. Well, but... We for, you know, we can't forget Tegeniev is a fatalistic author. That's true. He was the most fatalistic person. You know, he all his life he was so pessimistic. I think his one of his biographers said his pessimism was so extreme. <laughs> and yes, I was drawn to that as a young, you know, as a twelve-year-old, and I was drawn to the writing he did when he was in his late career he was about to die and he was writing these pessimistic prose poems yeah yeah but i think he wrote to an audience as i remember do you remember who that was audience it was a a granddaughter or something he um or his daughter no not granddaughter right but he was in he was in love with this opera singer oh yes okay that's what i'm this is you know way back in but he yeah. was. He wrote a lot of letters to her. Uh-huh. Those were beautiful letters. Right. Yeah, that they were very positive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's your next project? I am working on a novel, and you know, just after this book, it's good to come back to fiction, and I'm relieved to come back to fiction. And I have a, I have a probably six, seven short stories. You know, not enough for a collection. I'm mm-hmm. just short stories happen whenever they happen. So mm-hmm. I write when when I have an idea. In the meantime, I'm just working on this novel. Right. Yeah. And anything you want to share with us about that? Do you know where it's set? California. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. I'm very proud of myself. Good. It's going to be my first California novel. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> yeah. Let me uh, share. We'll go back to. Uh, Manjula, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Martin, and uh, what she asked you a couple things, okay? Mm-hmm. Can I? I yes. You don't have to read it. Yeah, you can I'll, read. Because it's a, it, it, I found it an off-putting kind of approach where she asks a question and then you answer and the, mm. you know, her question is in dark print, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and she asked you about the publishing world. How did you learn about the publishing business works? And you said, I still don't know. No, I mean, I've published four books, and I still say, what's the difference between marketing and publicity? I really don't know how publishing works, and I prefer not to. Mm-hmm. Well, then you want, she asks, and this, I love this one. Can you read this? I'll, no. I'll read the question, okay. and you read your answer. Okay. Uh, she asks, I'm curious about how much of your life is about teaching and how much is about writing. How are you feeding yourself and your kids? And you answer. Writing doesn't feed anybody. (laughs) Writing doesn't feed anybody. And I want all the wannabe writers out there to listen to that. She's going to say that again, right? Writing doesn't feed anybody. Right. So that's why you teach. Yes. Yes. So (laughs) I thought that was very, very profound. And it's probably the best piece of uh, advice that... uh, Many want to be writers would ever hear. Well, because there's always the assumption you're going to write this book and it's going to 
fly off the shelves and you're going to be on what used to be Oprah and right, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. Well, people have romantic ideas about being a writer. Yes. <laughs> yes. But you wouldn't do anything else. You couldn't do anything else. Writing, other than writing? Yeah. Well, I don't mean couldn't in the right. sense of not being able to. Right. You have the skills to do other things, but you're driven. Yes. I, I think, you know, once in a while I, I, I wonder, you know, what if I didn't give up science? I would still be a scientist. It's hard to see myself in that life. Mm-hmm. And I think partly I did not have that this kind of drive in science. I have the, what you call drive in writing, but right. that drive was right. not there when I was a scientist. And it's hard to live a life without that. An immunologist. An immunologist. Right. It's, it's, I like to at least have some drive at something. <laughs> when you were here last time, that just brought up a, a thought. You were having difficulty with your visa or your you know, s- status, status in the country yeah. because you had shifted from to science. be from science, which yeah. has a kind of a, a an almost automatic yeah. acceptance, yeah. and you know, here's a green card kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I I shared with our listeners sometime later when you know was a, maybe become aware of it that you had in fact uh, what's it I don't know earned been granted whatever granted, granted what did, yeah official status so you could stay in the yes. country, which was yes. certainly it's, nice and. It's, I used to daydream about getting my green card for the longest time. I know other people daydream about writing a successful book. Mm-hmm. For three years, I daydreamed about that green card. And your husband, who is also from China, yes, uh, he has his green card. He's working in computer. Yeah, something. he's a computer engineer. Right. So yeah, we both we both go, and then we not now we're 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 uh, citizens now. Ah. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank Welcome. you. Thank you. <laughs> We're Americans. That's wonderful. Yeah. Glad to have you be part of us. Yeah, thank you. It's a crazy time, however. It is. We'll it stay is. away from that. That's all right. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can. Yes, I know. It's, yeah. it's really, really hard. The um, Your teaching mm-hmm. experience, what... Um, when you began teaching, which was what, uh, Davis? Yes, Mills College. Mills College, right, yeah. yes, yeah, you was years were ago. there first. Yeah. Um, are you a different teacher now? I am. I'm much more. I'm, I think I used to. See what you just did? What? Just use the word I. Yes. Welcome to California. Thank you very much. Yes. You know, I yes. used to teach this. That's <laughs> yes. good. Yes. I mean, I don't, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, from my perspective, as the age I am, you know, with the white beard, mm-hmm. that's good. Okay. Right. That, uh, thank you. I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am a different teacher in that I really spend much less time talking about the crafts of writing now. Mm-hmm. I, I, te- I teach writing, but I think you can't really teach writing, so I teach reading, how to read a book. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. And there are so many books, as you notice, I read dead authors, but my students, some of my students, you know, I, I understand they read, you know, bestsellers. What's the hottest book up, out there? Mm-hmm. And so I try to introduce these or reintroduce these books that nobody reads and, you know, sort of show them there are other books you know, from 200 years ago, 300 years right. ago. Right. Well, were, they were, some of those were bestsellers too. Yes, they were. In the original in language. Their, yes, right. yes. So, so I'm, I'm teaching 
writing by teaching reading now, I think. Yeah. And I really, I can't really share a lot about writing. And, you know, you can't really teach or, you know, help someone write a story. But you can share what you get from a book. You can share what you read. Let's go back to the scientist part. Because where I began really writing in earnest when I was in grad school. And, mm-hmm. and my professors didn't want to write the journal articles. Oh, so, you... so I got to do oh, it. Okay. And it's a wonderful writing experience because it's a very laid out, prescribed mm-hmm. pattern. You must follow and write in this tense, in this way, right. and say things in a certain language, mm-hmm. which um, is a great skill to learn mm-hmm. because then you can forget it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The other thing that worked uh, for me was uh, writing a newspaper column. And oh. it had to be in at noon on Friday or it wouldn't be printed. Oh, okay. So deadlines. Deadlines. Yeah, deadlines. yeah absolutely. The most important right. thing. Yeah. And, that, and, you know, you need 650 words by noon. Boom. Yes. That's yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I always respect deadlines. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you write to a deadline? Sometimes. I used to write more towards deadlines. But now I think, you know... I'm becoming a slower writer. I spend more time thinking about each word, so I don't want to uh-huh. have like a imposing deadline. So did you just let me go back then? So with your first book, with the vagrants, for example, mm-hmm. did you write that in a rush? I wrote that in nineteen days. Okay. The, yeah, the first yes. draft. Yes. Because I was on a retreat. <laughs> ah, and that's the time you had. Yeah, because I left my very young children, my my little baby turned one while I was away on a retreat. So <laughs> oh dear! I, I only had not. You didn't. To... You weren't there for the first birthday cake and yes, then falling asleep right. in the, in the chair. Yes, yeah. yeah. I had twenty days there, so I spent nineteen days finishing a draft of the novel, and then just came back to revise. So that was deadline. That was deadline. Yeah. Your newest novel you're working on now. How mm-hmm. far are you into it? An oh, outline? See, no, I would say halfway. Halfway. And, yeah, yeah. But that didn't take nineteen days. No. It it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> I just need another retreat. <laughs> well, 19 days of retreat. You can negotiate that, yeah. right? Yeah. So when your students ask you, mm-hmm. so should I write in 19 days or should I write in 19 months? I would say, yeah, do, all, do whatever it feels right to you. I, mo- I think when you ask you know, how I changed, more and more I'm, hesitating to give any advice because anyway you know any rule you give to a student you have to tell them to break the rule so any advice (laughs) (laughs) i give them i would say you know you don't have to take my advice right yeah right i i think yeah i i I hesitate to give any prescriptions to their writing (laughs) right the 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 fall upon phrase for that is many people have found that and then you right yeah and you don't have to yes Prescribe, you know, That's say right. this is the way it must be. Yeah. Okay. So you're changed. You you're different. You're have at least uh, three revolutions of the seven year period since there you started you teaching. Yeah. 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 And um, you're a better teacher, more confident. I think so. Yeah. More more comfortable too. You're certainly more comfortable talking about Yi and Li. Oh, thank you. I, I Which think. I think might also come just because of age and experience. Uh huh. I, I I like that. I yeah. just like you, your observation that I'm more comfortable talking. Well, about. I, that's my observation that you sitting in essentially the same place that 
you know, we were in 2009. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, I don't know if part of that isn't a part of your worry and your dreams about what's going to happen with my green <laughs> my card. My green card. Yes. I was worried. Well, I would think. Yes. And that's the kind of worry that people need to be aware of, you know, when they're interacting with people during the day is they're not sleeping at night because they're sitting up worrying about things that weren't a problem a year ago. Yes. That's I. I am completely agreeing with you. Yeah. Yes. I just made a political statement on a public radio station. What do you think of that? I yeah. we we <laughs> clap. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a now very personal question. Mm-hmm. How are you now as a mother of a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old? 12-year-old. So you're going to have two teenagers, two yes. teenage boys. Are yes. you ready for that? Well, now, what... this is, remember, I'm the psychological educator yeah. who specialized in children, so... I don't think one can ever be ready for <laughs> this experience. You, you're right in that. If we if we knew it was coming, we wouldn't sign up for it. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I think I just have to go in and you know endure and and you know live with it. Do either of your boys like to write? My older son is a good writer. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I don't know if he wants to be a writer. I would not encourage him. Writing does not feed anyone. I read, heard that. Somebody said that. Somebody yes, very recently. Yes. Yeah. Writing, writing, writing feeds nobody. <laughs> so I have to let him understand that. Yeah, but writing feeds your soul. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we're back to that. Who do you write for? I asked you that question at the beginning. You wrote this book for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Their reader. I think their writer. Their friend. They're, sorry. Their friend. friend is, yeah, part of me. You're the friend. Yes. Which is wonderful. Yeah. You know, isn't that great just to take. So many years to be able to be my own friend. You no, know, what's wonderful about it is that you did and you reached that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's no small accomplishment. Well, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, now, there, see, I'm, I'm, I'm being grandfatherly over <laughs> or, or fatherly, I guess, for your age. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? You're, it's wide open, blank slate, tabla rasa, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. No, I think we covered okay. a well, wide range of topics. Can I just say thank you for your yeah. wonderful conversation and well, your openness and your... Thank you. I just think you're a really, really special person. I mean, and I know in the best sense of that. Thank you. That's special. That's very special. You have been listening to part of North Bay Public Media's continuing celebration of Women's History Month by listening to word-by-word conversations with writers... On today's show, host Gil Manser welcomed the return of novelist, essayist, and MacArthur Genius Grant winner Yi Yun Lee for an intimate discussion of Lee's memoir, Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life. Our studio engineer for today's show is also our station manager, Sean Knight. Our radio liaison is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I'm your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for the next word-by-word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday, April 9th, when our guest will be Eric Buchner with his latest short story collection, The Last Day on Earth, which has, on the back page, a commentary written by our today's guest, Ian Lee. Until then, we suggest you continue to celebrate Women's History Month by honoring an important woman in your personal history.